guys doing? You guys did really well. Uh, I think the lyrics thing was my issue. Uh, I think I was the one that forgot to put those in there. So you guys did a great job still singing without any lyrics. So that is cool. Um, if you're in K through fifth grade, uh, go ahead and run to Children's Church with Katie. You guys can head off and enjoy some stories and music that's a little bit more pertained to your age. Uh, some of you, I know you guys like really would like to see what's in there. Uh, some Sunday we might just have to show you guys like what the kids actually do in there. Uh, it's pretty enjoyable. So tonight, um, I just want to start with asking you guys, have you ever asked God for a sign? Maybe it was a sign of who you should marry. Maybe it was what job should you have or what should I get. Maybe it was how many kids should you have. And we've had people that have gone to pretty drastic lengths to figure out or to find a sign. Uh, you might even take a die that has one through six and try to roll it and say whatever number pops up is how many kids we're going to have, right? To think you're in that much control is foolish anyway. But again, like people do that. But have you ever asked God for a sign? Well, John, as we continue to, to go through John, John has his main theme of the whole book. He even gives his reason of why he has written the book uh, in chapter 20, where he says, there are therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That John has written his book for you and I to understand that there are signs and miracles that he talks about and writes about, and, and there's a reason, there's a purpose for that, so that you may believe. Now, with that being said, not everybody believes. And we're going to look at uh, the next section. So the next section is going to go from chapter 4, verse 46, and we're going to go all the way through the middle of uh, chapter 5. We're going to go to verse 24. So in that section, we have two different signs that we see. And, and both signs are fairly similar. So both signs, John pairs as an author together. And both of these signs are him physically healing somebody. So with his physical healing that he does, uh, we, we have to first kind of foremost set up the reason that, that John puts these two stories side by side. is kind of to compare and contrast these so you can see these stories against one another. That when you read one of the stories alone, you, you get more out of the text when you read both of them side by side. So let's look uh, today and see what John wants to write through these next two signs. So if you would start with me uh, in 4 verse 46. It says, Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, 
saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. So this again is a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So we're going to stop there for a second and just kind of look at this first story that, that John writes about. That John is writing about this first miracle of someone who had come to him uh, for this healing. So he had just got back into Cana, uh, and there's a map that's, that's back there if you want to put up the map. Uh, he's back to Cana. So if you guys remember where we started in John, uh, back in chapter 2, he was in Cana where he turned water into wine, and John reiterates that here. And then after that, it was Passover time, so he left and went to Jerusalem. And then on his way back from Jerusalem, you see that all the way in the bottom in Judea, he went all the way through Samaria, back on his way up into Galilee. He went through Samaria, and, and this is where we have the interaction with the woman at the well. So after that, John is writing that he comes back, and once he gets back, he is now back in Cana. Now, this is going to be interesting because the second story here, where he physically heals somebody, is in Jerusalem. So the question is, is, did he start in Cana, where he started his ministry, go down to Jerusalem for Passover, go all the way back up to Cana, and then all the way back down to Jerusalem? No, that's not necessarily what John's saying. Uh, so, so John doesn't write his book chronologically. He writes his book in order so that you may understand and see these two stories contrasted against one another. So we don't know exactly when in his ministry this man in Jerusalem was healed in the second story, but this first story sounds like it was right after he got back into the region when his ministry had started. So when we look at this, uh, we need to ask a few questions and then before we get to the second story. So the first thing is, is who is this royal official? So it says that there's a royal official. Now the royal officials at this time would rule over some land, some area. Uh, and in their duties, they were uh, essentially Romans. They were Gentiles, and we'll get into that a little bit more, but they were on duty for Rome, for Caesar. They were the go-between people, between Caesar and the rest of the people. So when you have a royal official come, who would be Roman, he's coming to a Jewish rabbi for help. Now, royal officials also would have had great wealth, great help. They had slaves. As you can hear in the story, he had slaves, uh, servants. Uh, and, and you can kind of understand a little bit better of royal officials and their authority and power that they have. Because uh, even if you look back in like Matthew 8, Matthew 8 also describes a story of a royal official or, or what they say, a centurion. Royal officials usually came from kind of two different career paths. Either you were from the military uh, or you were from uh, tax uh, assessment, not assessment, getting taxes. So you had either this market of tax or the military. And in Matthew 8, we hear about another one who came from the military. And as Jesus is speaking to him, he talks about the authority he has. And the authority ha he has is when he says go, whoever it is he says go to, does. When he says come, he comes. And to my slave, when I say do this, he does it. So when you're looking at these royal officials, these people that are in power and have authority, they have a lot of clout and, and power behind them. 
So when you see this royal official come to a Jewish rabbi, it's already a little bit intriguing right there. And the disciples that would have been with Jesus are already kind of on edge, like, what's going on? What's happening? This, this isn't the norm, right? So this royal official, uh, if you look back on the map, he comes from Capernaum. If you look at that, that's over on the, the east side where the Sea of Galilee is. Where the Sea of Galilee is over into Cana uh, was some pretty good elevation climb. So as he went to Cana, he was going up in elevation. Down where the Sea of Galilee is, it's kind of down in uh, the valley. But roughly between Cana and Galilee, depending on where he uh, had met him in Cana, was about 18 to 22 miles. So this man comes to find Jesus to ask him for a sign, to do this healing for him. Now, again, if you, if you think back and look through the other Gospels, there are times where these royal officials, these Romans, would send one of their servants or slaves instead of come in person. But it is interesting that this guy comes in person. I don't know how significant that is, but it does. John does elude that he does show up in person. And Jesus' response to him is pretty unique, isn't it? When, when all of a sudden the royal official comes to Jesus and he's asking him to heal his son who is at death's door, Jesus' response is, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. So what does that mean? Where Does that really fit? It doesn't seem to quite fit. I had to reread that several different times. But Jesus is telling the man and, and the people around him, so he says, you people, he's not just referring to the royal official alone, but he's saying, you people, the Galileans who are around to watch, there were usually a crowd around, but he's talking about you people. And he says that you people want proof in order to believe. And isn't that true today? Don't we want proof? Signs and wonders, as John is even writing about them, they do prove who Jesus is. But signs and wonders don't always lead to true belief. And we're going to see this big contrast in the next story. So this man, the royal official, comes to Jesus like any other non-believer. He would want to come and see a miracle. And he comes with a health need. And he says, fix it. He doesn't come and say, I have sin, please forgive me. So Jesus still gives him the command and says, go, your son lives. See, Jesus performs a miracle for him. He didn't make him do anything. He doesn't require anything of him beforehand. The man doesn't deserve it. When you really get into understanding whether any of us really deserve God's grace, but it truly is Jesus' grace to him, this undeserving man that he heals his son. And he tells him to go. He almost flip-flops the story a little bit when he tells a man with authority who tells other people to go, to go. And the response of the man is out of genuine faith. He heads home and he runs into his servants and they tell him that his son was instantly healed. So they described the hour that had happened and it gave the man even greater faith. And John reveals that the man and his household believed. So this is going to be a little bit of a contrast with the second story. So follow along with me as we get into chapter 5. 
So it says, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And there was a man who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool. When the water stirred up, but when I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus says to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. So let's stop there for a second. So this is now another sign that is, is very, very similar to the first story. However, there's a few differences. So as we look at a couple of these differences, the story of the man that's getting healed, uh, there, there's still a man that is getting healed in both stories, but both men are a little different. The one is a royal official, would be uh, a non-Jew. The man here who's getting healed in the second story is a Jew. And John elaborates on the story a little bit more than the first one. So he actually continues on with this story and he tells us a little bit more about this guy than he did with the first one. With the royal official, we don't really know any more of the story. That's it. We know that he and his household believe. This story, he continues on. So you see, this is where the main conflict is. The main problem that's going on in this story is that if you look at the second part of that verse, it says, now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is a Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while the crowd was in, while there was a crowd in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So you see the Sabbath is, is the main conflict of what's going on in the story. That the Jews were a little bit frustrated and angry at what's going on. So, let's ask and figure out a little bit of what's really going on with the Sabbath. So, the Sabbath was something that God had uh, given to the people. If you go back to Exodus 20, back in the Old Testament is when the Sabbath was given to the people. And the Sabbath was made for people to have a day that they would keep holy. Now, the Jews added on to that command with a bunch more rules. So let me tell you a few of the rules. Some of the rules are no sowing, plowing, reaping, binding, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, no shearing sheep, bleaching, dyeing, spinning, stretching material, weaving, separating, tying a knot, 
sowing, tearing, no trapping, hunting, slaughtering, skinning, curing hides, scrapping pelts, writing, building, demolishing, kindling a flame, carrying. Okay, so we'll stop there. Carrying, that's where we're at. That's where we kind of landed. You can't carry anything either. But you can kind of start to see how many rules are in place. This is not something that was light or easy. In fact, um, we're told quite a bit that as Jesus is trying to help the disciples understand and know what the Sabbath is for, you see that uh, in the Gospel of Mark, he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, the day was meant for man's enjoyment, but it was in turn into enslavement. It was in turn into a bunch of rules. In fact, the Sabbath wasn't really enjoyable anymore because you had to follow all these rules and figure everything out ahead of time and make sure that you couldn't cook on that day and everything was planned ahead of time. I mean, you think of how, how rough and crazy that that would be. Uh, you would constantly be just spinning, trying to figure out how to keep that day the way that the Jews had designed it. So the Sabbath is already the main conflict. And Jesus comes and says, I'm going to heal a man on the Sabbath. He does it with purpose and he does it for an intention. There's a, a reason that he does this healing on the Sabbath. So as he does this work on the Sabbath, he also doesn't come up with excuses. Jesus doesn't tell them why he healed on the Sabbath and go through this uh, whole reason and teaching of why the Sabbath was made back in Exodus 20 the way it was. Instead, Jesus says one thing. He said, my father is working until now and I myself am working. You see, Jesus responds and def in defense that God works on the Sabbath. I mean, if you think about it, the sun still rises, the birds in the air still get fed, the rivers still flow. And Jesus equates himself with God. Now, now don't get Jesus' point here wrong. So he's not saying that because God works on the Sabbath that you can work on the Sabbath. What he's saying is that God works on the Sabbath so he can work on the Sabbath. He has equated himself with the Father. And as you notice, too, there are a couple things in this story pertaining to the Sabbath that is pretty interesting. So you now can kind of see the contrast of the, of the two people and their response. So the royal official's response was that he believed. And he apparently told his household. He spread the news. He had mentioned what was going on, and they believed as well. The second story, if you notice, John doesn't write that. He doesn't say the lame man believed. He said he took his pout and left. He had his miracle. He left. He took that. But when he gets confronted by the Jews, the Jews initially ask him, you broke the rules. And by breaking the rules, what are you doing? Like, they're out to get him. And his first response is, wait a minute. The guy that healed me actually told me to carry it. It wasn't, wasn't me that tried to do that. 
I think I did that as a kid several times where all of a sudden, you know, you, your mom catches you jumping off the, the couch and you break the lamp and the first thing you say is, you know, Dan made me do it. it wasn't me. We have this all the time. But the heart condition of the Jews was something that really kind of blocked them and, and stopped them from really seeing the miracle the way uh, that others did. And even the man, the lame man who left, uh, you kind of see uh, the culmination of Jesus meeting him again in the temple. And Jesus responds with, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Jesus says even a little bit more to him that, that he knows the man's heart and the man gets this word from God and what is the man's response after this? He goes back and tells the Jews. He says, yep, it was Jesus. I didn't know who it was before, but now I do. So it wasn't me that was trying to break the rules. I wasn't trying to carry my pallet. It was, it was him, Jesus did. Jesus was the one that told me to do it. There's a huge difference in the response of these two stories. And John elaborates in this story what's kind of going on. So even in Jesus' response in the temple to this man, he gives a warning. So I want you to go back with this warning with me. He says, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. So what's worse than being an outcast? Sitting lame for 38 years. So this last week, I just turned 37. So I'm not even at 38. So I wouldn't even know what that looks like yet. Some of you know what 38 years looks like, and it's a long time. To sit lame, having a physical ailment, and to want and to have a sign shown to you, it would be pretty proper for him, right? He'd want to get healed. And in both stories, God is so gracious, and he shows grace to people that are undeserving. He gives grace to a royal official for his son, and he gives grace to this lame man who has been sitting there for 38 years. But this is where John really tries to point these two stories, the theme of these two stories, really land in verse 24 uh, in chapter 5, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. John uses these couple stories talking about physical healing to describe what only he does spiritually. And even in Jesus' warning to this lame man, he says, sin no more so that nothing worse happens. Because the worst thing is that you could be judged. The worst thing is could yet to come. And it's in this where we really start to see the equation that Jesus equates himself with God and not only does he equate himself with God but he also reveals that not only does he do physical healings that he does physical miracles but he also can do spiritual miracles that he can change your heart into something completely different a heart of stone gets turned into a heart of flesh so let's finish up on these last few verses starting in 18, 
And it was for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And if you remember back in chapter 1, John writes about this, that the people he came to are also the ones that reject him. He says he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And then he responds here in verse 19, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all the honor so all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And again, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. That he is revealing himself, that the Jewish nation themselves, that he himself is a Jew and yet he's rejected, that you and I are meant to see these stories. We're meant to see these compared and contrasted and understand and know that it's not only a physical healing that we should be seeking, but it's a spiritual healing. That he wants us to believe that Jesus came to fix your heart more than he came to fix your broken life. And Jesus gracious, graciously came to take the judgment of your sin from you. And you and I are meant to believe in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, some just wanted to have signs and miracles. That was the warning in the first, in the first story. That some are just seeking signs and miracles, but they're really not believing in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet John says it is the person of Jesus Christ that gave you the biggest sign or miracle that he could ever do for you and I. And what Jesus did for you and I on the cross where he died it says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. You see, the Jews thought that they should be first and foremost, given whatever God wanted, and they worked really, really hard for it. And as the Jews worked hard for it and they obeyed the law, God owed them something first and foremost. And yet, Jesus time and time again reveals to them that he's performing a lot of these miracles to Gentiles, to non-Jews. And yet, they're the ones that are showing genuine and true faith in Christ. And yet, there's a stumbling block for some people that even as they see signs and miracles, as you see the Jews, it doesn't even say the Pharisees here, as he will say later in the book, but he says Jews. The Jews were seeking to kill him. They weren't praising God for seeing these miracles. They were mad. Think of watching and seeing God's grace performed in somebody else's life and get frustrated and mad. The Jews 
have united over their nation and they have united over the fact that God had a covenant with them. And think, of, think about that today. What if, what if it was another country other than the United States of America that was received God's grace more than us? Wouldn't we be a little frustrated? Don't we want God to bless our nation before any other nation? God, you can bless other nations, but just do ours first. And just the way these Jews responded, they had a heart that was not seeking after Jesus Christ and the work He's doing and what God was doing, but they were trying to seek after something completely different. And you see this contrast that John lays out, that in the first story it says the man believed. And in the second story, it says the man took his gracious miracle and he left. So if you guys would, close with me in prayer, and then we'll sing one last song that continues to point us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you that tonight you continue to reveal to us and teach us that you're a God that's full of grace, full of mercy. And you're also a God that can't be controlled by good works. That it's not by doing all those good things that force you into being gracious upon us, but you are gracious upon us first and foremost without us even believing in you. And we just thank you for giving us that faith giving us that belief in you to know that it was the work that you died for us while we were yet sinners. We just thank you tonight. We just ask and pray that you help us to pray for those around us that we would desire to see your grace given to those around us. And we pray that it would be your signs and miracles that would continue to point people to believe in you. But we also know that just because you perform gracious signs and miracles for us, that doesn't lead to true belief. So we just thank you and praise you. And we ask that we would continue to share with those around us that others may believe as well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you guys would stand up, we're going to sing another song.